0: Hello and welcome to this installment of Easy Law here on member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. I'm your volunteer reader Paul White, I'm a Phoenix attorney as well, and in this program we explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems. Well, we also uh, range farther afield uh, because at this time of year the U.S. Supreme Court is making some of its most important decisions. There are some that uh, were in the news, the national news, and uh, we'll have the Arizona perspectives on those. And there were a couple of decisions, uh, not full blown case opinions from the US Supreme Court, but decisions not to hear a couple of Arizona cases. And we'll talk about those as well. So let's go ahead and get started with this first article. Uh, This is from the Arizona Republic. Supreme Court's ruling on LGBTQ discrimination won't end efforts for state law in Arizona. It's reported by Andrew Oxford. It was in the Arizona Republic on Monday, June 15th. Here's the article. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision Monday protecting workers from discrimination based on their sexual orientation or transgender status was a milestone for the rights of LGBTQ Americans. But state lawmakers argue the ruling still leaves Arizona's Arizonans open to unfair treatment in many other areas of daily life. The landmark ruling does not prohibit housing discrimination, for example, in states like Arizona where there are no laws expressly barring such discrimination. And while at least five Arizona cities have adopted anti-discrimination policies over the past few decades, most of the state's municipalities have not. And an executive order from former Governor Janet Napolitano in 2003 prohibited discrimination in state government based on sexual orientation, but not on gender identity. The governor's office said it was reviewing the decision, but spokesman Patrick Patak said Governor Doug Ducey, quote unquote, remains opposed to discrimination in all its forms. While counting Monday's decision as a victory, legislators and advocates for the rights of LGBTQ Arizonans said the court did not end the campaign for a comprehensive anti-discrimination law at the state level. Both Congress and each state needs to finish the job the Supreme Court has started, said Michael Soto, Executive Director of Equality Arizona, which advocates for LGBTQ rights. Democrats, along with one Republican, State Senator Kate Brophy McGee of Phoenix, sponsored bills this year that would make it illegal to discriminate in many circumstances against a person because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. An employer, for example, could not turn down a job applicant, or a landlord could not turn away a prospective renter because the person is gay or transgender under their proposals. But bipartisan backing and support from blue-chip companies have not been enough to overcome staunch opposition from conservatives to similar bills filed in recent years in the Republican-controlled legislature. The bills did not get a single hearing this year. Proponents have said they see themselves making some progress in Arizona politics, though. In 2019, for example, the legislature repealed Arizona's No Promo Homo Law, which restricted schools from discussing HIV or AIDS. That was an informal uh, title given to the law. It wasn't the formal title. This year, a controversial sex education bill did not even get a hearing after national media coverage and an outcry from LGBTQ rights groups. Supporters of LGBTQ rights suffered a setback in 2019, however, when the Arizona Supreme Court ruled in favor of a small business that sued the city of Phoenix over the municipal government's non-discrimination ordinance. We cover that extensively here on this program. The owners of Brush and Nib argued they should not have to make wedding invitations for gay couples. They had not been asked, but they sued before the issue could arise. The Supreme Court ruling overturned multiple lower court decisions that protected the portion of Phoenix's non-discrimination ordinance that applies to the LGBTQ community. An attorney for Phoenix insisted the decision was narrow and did not strike down the city's law, but LGBTQ rights groups said they feared the decision did leave room for broader lawsuits. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on Monday does not address similar issues of public accommodation one of the three main elements of the anti-discrimination laws that LGBTQ rights advocates have proposed at the legislature. Obviously, this is not a be-all end-all decision, said Representative Daniel Hernandez, a Democrat from Tucson and chairman of the legislature's LGBTQ caucus. You can still get denied housing. You can still get denied public accommodations other people are entitled to. Instead, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, stemmed from employment disputes, three different cases of people who said they were fired because they are gay or transgender. Gerald Bostock, for example, worked as a child welfare services coordinator and said he was fired after joining a gay softball league. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination, quote, because of sex, close quote. In the 6-3 decision that brought together some conservative jurists with liberal judges, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed that this also prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender status. Writing for the majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch acknowledged that the authors of the Civil Rights Act probably did not imagine that the provision about sex discrimination would come to apply to LGBTQ people. But the limits of the drafter's imagination supply no reason to ignore the law's demands, he wrote. When the express terms of a statute give us one answer and extra-textual considerations suggest another, it's no contest. Only the written word is the law, and all persons are entitled to its benefit. Conservatives argued the court's decision recasts the law's meaning in a way its authors did not intend and effectively acted as lawmakers. There's only one word for what the court has done today, legislation, Justice Samuel Alito wrote in a dissent. The consequence, critics contend, suddenly changes the rules for many employers in ways they may not have expected. Today's ruling redefines the term sex and could have a chilling effect on conscience, rights, and protections and equal opportunities for girls and women, said Kathy Herod, president of the Center for Arizona Policy, a conservative advocacy group. To finish the job, as Soto described it, and address at the legislative rather than judicial level, lawmakers will have to settle a culture war that has been raging for years at the narrowly divided Arizona legislature, the fate of which may rest on the election in November, as well as the session that comes after that. And that's the end of the article from in the Arizona Republic from Andrew Oxford, headlined Supreme Court's Ruling on LGBTQ Discrimination, won't end efforts for state law in Arizona. That was Monday. Then the high court made a ruling on Wednesday that also has Arizona impacts. And here's the first article. This is from KJZZ.org, Michelle Morisco and Matthew Casey. The headline is U.S. Supreme Court rejects end to DACA protections for young immigrants. Arizona leaders react. The Supreme Court on Thursday rejected President Donald Trump's effort to end legal protections for 650,000 young immigrants, a stunning rebuke to the president in the midst of his re-election campaign. The outcome seems certain to elevate the issue in Trump's campaign, given the anti-immigrant rhetoric of his first presidential run in 2016 and immigration restrictions his administration has imposed since then. The justices rejected administration arguments that the eight-year-old Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, or DACA, is illegal, and that courts have no role to play in reviewing the decision to end DACA. Arizona Democrat Raul Grijalva called the 5-4 decision a victory. It's a victory for those who fought from childhood and well into their adult lives to send a message that they have every right to exist in the only home they have ever known, said Grijalva, It's a strong rejection of one of President Trump's central ideas of his presidency that seeks to rewrite America's immigrant heritage and demonize those who don't look like him. Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego tweeted, "'Wonderful news for our DACA recipients. "'They are a crucial part of the fabric of our nation, "'and we are lucky to have them.'" Erica Andiola is herself a DACA recipient who helped create the Arizona Dream Act Coalition. She responded to a Twitter posting about the court's decision. I will print this and put it on my wall to remind myself that every fricking action we have taken to fight for this has mattered. We pushed Obama and we defeated Trump. This is the power of organizing and movement building. That was her tweet. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the Democratic appointed judges and justices and wrote that then Homeland Security Secretary Elaine Duke did not consider the effects rescinding DACA would have on the program's recipients. Here, the agency failed to consider the conspicuous issues of whether to retain forbearance and what, if anything, to do about the hardship to DACA recipients. That dual failure raises doubt about whether the agency appreciated the scope of its discretion or exercised that discretion in a reasonable manner, he wrote. An hour after the Supreme Court's ruling, President Donald Trump tweeted, Do you get the impression that the Supreme Court does not like me? And that article was from KJZZ, our sister station. U.S. Supreme Court rejects end to DACA protections for young immigrants, Arizona Leaders React, and that was from Michelle Morisco and Matthew Casey. Now let's read a commentary. This was on Arizona Mirror, azmirror.com, and this uh, uh, this is a commentary from that day by James E. Garcia. Headline, the Supreme Court says dreamers can stay for now. It's time we let them stay for good. The U.S. Supreme Court did the right thing. On Thursday, the nation's highest court ruled President Donald Trump's decision to end the Federal Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, was arbitrary and capricious and a violation of federal law. President Trump, of course, is infamously arbitrary and capricious and just as often cruel and disinterested in the consequences of his actions. In this case, the consequences of a Trump win would have been devastating to the more than 650,000 DACA recipients, better known as DREAMers. Had the justices ruled in the president's favor, their lives, along with the lives of their families, would have been turned upside down. I know DREAMers. I count many of them as friends. I've worked with them. I've marched with them. I've celebrated their triumphs and shared in their heartaches. You know them, too. It would be hard not to. Some 200,000 dreamers, including an estimated 7,000 here in Arizona, are among the ranks of millions of essential workers in so-called frontline jobs that have kept this country running throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Nearly 30,000 dreamers have jobs in healthcare, including some who work as hospital nurses and even doctors, risking their lives to treat people infected with the coronavirus. Because those who have DACA now, activists... Say, another 1.5 million young immigrants probably qualify for the program, but they either don't know how to apply, don't have the money to do so, or they are afraid to share their personal information with a presidential administration that has been so openly hostile towards immigrants. Despite Thursday's win at the Supreme Court, DREAMers are still considered undocumented under U.S. immigration law. President Barack Obama created DACA by executive order in 2012, the program only grants recipients temporary legal authority to stay in the country. It's called deferred action because it only postpones the deportation of the DREAMers. So while the court's decision was a colossal victory for DREAMers, it does not mean their fight is over. DREAMers still do not have U.S. citizenship, meaning they still don't have the right to live permanently in the only country many of them have ever ever known. To qualify for DACA, Dreamers had to be younger than 16 when their parents brought them to the United States. Most Dreamers came as young children, in some cases as infants or toddlers. They came because they were brought here by their parents, and their parents came because they believed like so many of the untold multitudes who have arrived on our shores for centuries from around the world that life would be better here to know a dreamer is to know someone who is an american in every practical way but for the fact that by a quirk of fate they were not born in the united states and so for years and decades in some cases Dreamers have had to live day in and day out with the knowledge that America, the place they call home, might turn its back on them one day and force them to return to a place as foreign to them as it might be for you and me. For many years, undocumented and unafraid has been a favored chant for dreamers and marches and rallies in support of DACA and a path to citizenship. What it means is that America is their land too, no matter the technicalities of their immigration status or the sometimes outright hatred they have endured from people who insist that dreamers don't deserve to stay in the U.S. I've long admired the extraordinary determination and uniquely exceptional courage of many dreamers in the face of the seemingly incessant barrage of obstacles meant to keep them from achieving their goal. Imagine waking up every day of your life and having to ask yourself, is today the day that I'll be deported? Is today the day that my hopes and dreams and the life I've built with my family here will be taken away? Is this the day it'll all vanish as if it were just a dream? And yet they go on. They get up in the morning, they go to work, they raise children, they buy cars and homes and start businesses. And they march and protest and demand that elected officials who they're not allowed to vote for represent them in their struggle. And it is by doing these things that would otherwise be routine for you and me that they contribute to what America is and what it will become. And our country is better for it. We're better for it because, as you read this, dreamers are on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Dreamers are stocking the shelves at supermarkets or delivering food to our front doors. There are dreamers who are entrepreneurs, lawyers, scientists, teachers, and working in almost every profession imaginable. In other words, they are us. It's been more than a century since someone I like to think of as our state's original dreamer came to Arizona, brought by his undocumented parents at the age of two amid the tumult of the Mexican Revolution, and who grew up to become a teacher, a boxer, a lawyer, a judge, a U.S. ambassador, and the state's only Latino governor. His name was Raul H. Castro, and until his death five years ago this month, Castro, who eventually became a naturalized U.S. citizen, spoke often of his deep and personal admiration for today's dreamers. He did that because he understood from experience what it meant to have the courage and grit it takes to wake up every morning in the face of adversity in a country where you're not always welcome to fight another day. He understood why dreamers dream. Today, the Supreme Court did the right thing. Tomorrow, dreamers will show us what it takes to fight another day. And that commentary was from James E. Garcia. The Supreme Court says dreamers can stay for now. It's time we let them stay for good. And that was on the Arizona Mirror, azmirror.com. Well, our next article about the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, rulings and decisions this week is from our website, arizonaslaw.org. And this one is headlined, U.S. Supreme Court shuts door on two Arizona cases, rejects Libertarian Party and Tempe's original, quote unquote, squatter, question mark. The U.S. Supreme Court shut the legal door on two long-running Arizona cases this morning when it refused to hear appeals from Tempe's original squatter, question mark, and the Arizona Libertarian Party. The Libertarians have been fighting a law passed in 2015 by the Republican-controlled legislature and signed by a Republican governor that effectively wiped out Libertarians from appearing on Arizona's general election ballots. The amendments, following several close congressional races that featured Libertarian candidates possibly impacting the outcome, changed signature requirements for the Libertarian candidates. It factored in unaffiliated voters in the calculations, Although it also changed that formula for Democratic and Republican signature requirements, only Libertarian candidates saw a significant increase in the minimum number of signatures required to get on the ballot. The Libertarian Party has argued that this has put them in an unconstitutional electoral purgatory, with enough registered party members to have an established spot on the ballot, while it is impossible for their candidates to qualify for the primary and general elections. Arizona law gives each party the choice of whether to allow independents to vote in their primary elections, and only the libertarians have chosen to keep their quote-unquote associational right to exclude non-libertarians from voting in their primary. The libertarians have been battling against the law since 2016, Oh, so that requirement, they're deciding to keep their primary closed, means that they can't, they, won't have, they can't have the independents also sign their petitions, even though those independent voters are factored into how many signatures are required. The Libertarians have been battling against the law since 2016. In fact, the first challenge was filed by the Republican Party's chairperson against the Libertarian Party's candidate for governor that year. The Arizona Supreme Court upheld those new requirements. Last year, the Ninth Circuit panel unanimously ruled that Arizona only imposed at most a modest burden on the Libertarian Party's First and Fourteenth Amendment rights, while directly advancing Arizona's important regulatory interests. And today, the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to review that Ninth Circuit ruling. Simultaneously, the justices declined to hear what could be the final legal chapter in the city of Tempe and the city of Tempe's Salt River squatter dispute that dates back to before Arizona's statehood. Stephen Sussex lives in an adobe house on the banks of the Salt River near downtown Tempe that his family bought and has occupied since 1892. Arizona became a state in 1912. Tempe and the state of Arizona have been trying to get him and his personal property off of their property, or what they think is their property, since shortly after Tempe Town Lake became a reality. The legal cases began in 2010 and have continued at one level or another ever since. Sussex told the U.S. Supreme Court that the injustice to the Sussex family is of national magnitude. He also claims that the Arizona Court of Appeals incorrectly applied state law to decide federal law, and that federal law was the New Mexico-Arizona Enabling Act of 1910. The Arizona Supreme Court chose not to review the lower court's decision. The Sussex Petition outlined an interesting chapter in the state's history, explaining how Congress gave Arizona land to establish the trust that benefits Arizona education the checkerboard method of deciding which land went into the trust deeded the state some lands that already had settlers living on it. In 2002, the state then sold the land that the Sussexes were on to the Union Pacific Railroad, and then they went on to transfer it to the city of Tempe. The crux of the case against that sale is that the state is required to sell the trust lands by public auction per the Enabling Act. And as detailed in the Arizona Republic, one of the Arizona Court of Appeals judges figuratively threw his hands up in the air during the oral arguments and asked, Who the hell owns this property then? Stephen Sussex also gave the paper and his attorney, Jack Willencheck a tour of the 128-plus-year-old property. And so that was a difficult decision for the U.S. Supreme Court not to hear that case. It was difficult. And I talked with the attorney for Mr. Sussex, And he indicates that uh, Tempe did get Mr. Sussex off the land already while the case was in front of the or waiting for a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Our next article is from the Arizona Republic. This is one we've covered in the past as well. Former Maricopa County Assessor Paul Peterson pleads guilty to welfare fraud against the state in 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 an international adoption scheme. And this is reported by Robert Anglin. Paul Peterson, who made dozens of illegal adoption deals over the past decade, tried to turn a guilty plea Thursday into a deal of his own. Whether he succeeded will be measured on how much time he spends in prison. The former Maricopa County Assessor faces state and federal charges in Arizona, Utah, and Arkansas for using his private adoption business to transport pregnant women from the Republic of the Marshall Islands to the United States. Peterson told a Maricopa County Superior Court judge he intends on parlaying three guilty pleas into a universal deal to reduce his sentence and land them in a federal penitentiary rather than state prison or prisons. Your Honor, I can tell you now, I would not be here in front of you if I wasn't going to resolve all of these cases, he said in his only statement. Peterson, during a closed hearing, admitted cheating the state's health care system or ACCESS Uh, out of more than $800,000 and forging documents to jack up the fees that he charged adoptive parents. In Utah, state prosecutors charged him with human smuggling. In Arkansas, federal prosecutors charged him with smuggling, fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering. Peterson's lawyer told the court that Peterson is expected to plead guilty in Utah during a telephonic hearing on Friday and in Arkansas during the week of June 21st. Mr. Peterson is also going to enter pleas of guilty in those two cases, Scottsdale lawyer Kurt Altman said in court. The agreement has been done. Everybody's in that understanding. As part of a plea agreement with the Arizona Attorney General's office, Peterson pleaded guilty to three counts of fraud and one count of forgery, all felonies. He faces up to 16 and a half years in prison on the Arizona charges alone. Allman said the goal is to get Peterson sentenced in federal court in Arkansas before being sentenced on state charges in Arizona or Utah. That way, he does his time in federal prison, whatever time that may be. Allman said state prosecutors in Utah and federal prosecutors in Arkansas have agreed to sentence Peterson concurrently with whatever sentence he is given in Arizona. There's been an agreement with the three different prosecuting agencies that Mr. Peterson would be sentenced in the federal court in Arkansas first, Altman said. That way, the primary custody of him would be in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Despite Peterson's assurances that all three cases were tied together as part of one deal, the Attorney General's office confirmed Thursday that there is no such agreement stipulated in his plea deal, which covers only the Arizona charges. Prosecutors did not agree that he would serve sentences concurrently, a spokesman for the Arizona Attorney General's office said after court. Officials said sentencing would be up to the court. While Paul Peterson enjoyed a position of respect and trust in the community, he manipulated adoptive families and bilked Arizona taxpayers for his own profit, Attorney General Mark Burnovich said in a statement on Thursday. Mr. Peterson must now answer for his crimes. It does not matter if you're politically connected, wealthy, or an elected official. The rule of law applies equally to everyone. At the beginning of Thursday's hearing, Brnovich's office charged Peterson with two additional fraud and forgery charges that were part of his guilty plea. Prosecutors said Peterson submitted false documents in Maricopa County Juvenile Court to increase the fees he got from families looking to adopt children. Prosecutors said in one case, he billed the family $11,000 to pay for a birth mother's living expenses. Peterson told the adoptive family that the birth mother had lived in Arizona for months when he had actually flown her to the U.S. a day before her pregnancy, then flew her out of the country a few days after she gave birth. The plea deal was a reversal for Peterson, who for months has proclaimed his innocence and vowed publicly to fight the charges. Peterson was arrested in October. Authorities said he created a pipeline to bring Marshallese birth mothers to the U.S., fraudulently enroll them for Medicaid benefits, and arrange adoptions of their children to American families for up to $40,000 each. Marshallese citizens are not eligible for Medicaid unless they have lived in the U.S. for five years. According to state investigators, Peterson and his associates lied about the residency status of birth mothers so that they could illegally access the health care benefits. Between November of 2015 and May of 2019, ACCESS paid for at least 29 births. Adoption contracts show Peterson attempted to use the Medicaid system in other states as well. He and his co-defendant, Linwood Jeanette, originally were charged in Arizona with 32 counts related to Medicaid fraud jeanette served as peterson's liaison for the marshallese women and lived with them in a mesa fourplex she pleaded guilty in december to conspiracy fraud theft and failure to file a tax return and with that we come to the conclusion of this week's installment of az law our next broadcast installment will be the third saturday of july at eleven a m and in between we have special on-demand installments so I'm your volunteer reader Paul White thanking you for listening to AZ Law and urging you to stay tuned to member supported Sun Sounds of Arizona.